What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Brown Girl Green, a podcast where I interview diverse and dynamic environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to address the climate crisis. I am so excited for today's episode because I got to interview my mentee. Uh, her name is Alexia Leclerc, and she is an absolute superstar. It was awesome because we're both a part of this program with Toms of Maine, which is, you know, this company that makes the Toms of Maine products. And they launched this incubator program, which I am a leader and a mentor in. And it basically provided different environmental justice activists with grant funding to basically work on grassroots environmental activism on the ground. And it's also like a multi-month mentorship program where basically we were paired with mentees and I got paired with Alexia and she is absolutely amazing. So it was awesome that I get to bring her on the show today for you all to also understand the awesome work she does. Some little little things on her incredible CV is that she's led dozen of environmental justice campaigns from passing national climate and chemical reform legislation and fighting for clean water to addressing aggregate mining, pollution, relocating toxic tank farms, and organizing mutual aid programs in her community. She is also the co-founder of the Colorado River Conservancy under Poder and a political education nonprofit named Start Empowerment. She has also done amazing work to reach hundreds of thousands of students across the U.S., and her work has been recognized on really big main stage platforms like Bloomberg, Washington Post, Yahoo, Guardian, and more. And yeah, she has just like an incredible CV um, where she is doing so much work to empower her community, to do community organizing, and now is currently a graduate student at Harvard University doing work around liberatory pedagogies, which is an incredible, you know, amazing phrase that I didn't really know what that meant. And she talks about it in today's episode on what that looks like in her work, how she embodies that. And just a TLDR, her whole um, ethos is about providing tools on the ground when it comes to communities fighting against extractive industries that are harming their communities and being able to build trainings and curriculum to empower them to stand up and say enough is enough to take action and to address climate change. So check out this episode. And as always, remember to subscribe to the Brown Girl Green podcast and follow the Brown Girl Green podcast Instagram that just launched recently. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the climate movement, as well as talking about solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I am so excited for today's guest. She is my mentee as part of the Toms of Maine incubator program, but she's also an incredible leftist climate activist and does amazing community organizing work. And I am so honored to have her on the show today. So I would love if you could start off and introduce yourself to the Brown Girl Green podcast community. Yeah, thank you for having me. So my name is Alexia. I use she, they pronouns. I'm from Austin, Texas, where I organize around fighting environmental racism in East Austin with Poder. And then I'm also the co-founder of Start Empowerment, and we're a radical justice-centered education orgs, and we work 
primarily with BIPOC youth to make sure that they have access to environmental justice education and then the tools and trainings to have the skills to advocate for what their community needs. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I absolutely love all the work that you're doing. And I wanted to know if you could dive a little bit deeper into your upbringing and what got you into climate and environmental activism. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is kind of cultural and like founded in my mom's teachings. I remember, you know, just learning about tree spirits and how we're connected to each other and the environment. And so I think for that reason, I always really had a close um, relationship with the outdoors and loved spending time there. And I actually also moved around a little bit um, before moving to Texas when I was eight. Um, and I kind of saw the the varying impacts of pollution in the different communities that I, I had lived in. You know, for example, in Singapore, I remember like school shutting down for an entire week because of how bad air pollution was. Or when I lived in France, I got to like really run around in the mountains. And so just seeing that contrast and, you know, where my grandparents live, um, I really saw the disparities in the pollution burden that people experienced. Yeah. And so... In that journey, a lot of it seemed like you, you, you noticed a lot of like the harms that were happening and the injustices and felt like you had a role in that. What do you feel like you realize your role could be in that work? Yeah, I mean, I think I started out in eighth grade installing recycle bins at my school. I think it's kind of a, the thing that you're taught is like recycling. And I think from there, you know, I had a more in-depth understanding of the climate crisis and you know, the corporations that are responsible, the governments that are responsible, and the systems that are responsible. And I found Poder, which is kind of the environmental justice org in Austin, and was able to learn with them through the Young Scholars for Justice program and organize with them and kind of get into organizing and advocacy. And I really love that because it was, it felt like community because at the root mm -hmm. of organizing is building relationships with each other. Um, and I think that aspect of it um, just brought me a lot of joy um, even though we were fighting these hard battles. Yeah, it was like, in a way, you found a home in the work that you were doing while addressing the harms that you were noticing happening to the communities that you care about the most. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to know a little bit more about the research that you're currently working on. I know that education is a really important tool in the activism that you do. I wanted to know a little bit more if you could share that with the audience. Yeah, so I'm currently a student at Harvard and I'm focusing on liberatory pedagogies and really understanding how education can be used as a tool to advance social environmental justice causes. I think back, back in undergrad, I had the you know privilege to be able to take really cool radical classes you know on capitalism and colonialism and critical theory and things like that that have really shaped my politics and my organizing. But I know that most people don't have access to that or even to the mm -hmm. books or to that knowledge um, or to those histories that are purposely not taught in schools. And so uh, that's when I co-founded Start Empowerment because I really wanted to make sure that high school students and college students had access to that knowledge. And right now I'm furthering my research and understanding how like different Asian and indigenous ecologies in particular can be used to teach about climate and the solutions. Okay, you got to dive a little bit more into that. How can tell me more about that? a little bit of what you found in terms of like Asian and indigenous ecologies related to uh, pedagogy. Tell me more. 
Yeah, I think, you know, understanding cultural relevance and education and how, you know, teaching about traditional culture is a huge part of solving the climate crisis because our relationships mm-hmm. with each other and how we function in society is deeply tied to what our values are, which is deeply ingrained in our culture. And so how can we use that and how can we teach that in a way that is relevant um, to young people? And mm-hmm. how can we make that place based? How can we make it so that it's action oriented and project based and relevant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a part of it, right? Like, there's been a lot of this disconnect for those of us who are a part of diasporas, it, where we lost the connection to understanding our connection to nature, to community, to even self in a lot of ways. And I think being able to connect the dots for people in some ways, it's not like it's a privileged thing, but like having access to things like academia and higher education allows you to be in those spaces of, you know, deep philosophical thought about where humanity is at this moment, but also knowing that like it is rooted in your own ancestry and they didn't need to be in like all these academic higher ed spaces to be able to translate exactly what we intrinsically know as human beings Mm -hmm. and the need to reconnect to the environment so it's an interesting balance where it's like you're using the tools to build to build frameworks right to make it more accessible for people and I know that you do that in like your activism and your organizing too it's like you're kind of in you're straddling this line of both being in this higher academic ivy league space but also knowing that you have accountability to communities on the ground that might not have access to those spaces. How do you grapple with that line? How do you, with having that kind of access, how do you translate that into your activism? Yeah, I think, I mean, even the choice of going to grad school was something that I made very intentionally. And it was really, I had, you know, researched the professors that I specifically wanted to work with Mm. that were doing really cool work and accountable to their own communities. And so going in and knowing what knowledge I want to take, what resources I want to use, and how can I use that and bring that back home and bring that back to the people that, you know, I care so deeply about and to the communities that need it. Um, Because I think very often it is, you know, it is a very privileged place to be at. And a lot of the knowledge and resources stay within um, academia. And I think that's really deeply problematic. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you look at the percentages, like the percent of BIPOC people getting masters or even PhDs like the I've seen the chart like the number continues to decrease as you go get more degrees or accolades and it is one of those things where it's like it will just stay in those institutions and I think it is something to say like you know I didn't decide to go to grad school because I felt like I didn't see the value in it but I think there is an amazing value that does still exist, especially for people who come from marginalized communities, to be able to access those spaces, be able to reap that knowledge and build out, you know, programming and get access to funding that you can only get it by being a part of those institutions and getting those titles and then being able to do that redistribution, right? So it sounds like that's like a big part of like the approach that you're taking is like you're you're being able to build out exactly the program you want to build, working with the professors you exactly want to build with to be strategic and to bring those back to the communities you care about. Am I right about all of that? Yeah, 100%. (laughs) That's that's awesome. I think that's, that's something that for people listening, you know, that is an amazing way that you can use grad school as a tool for climate activism by being able to 
access a lot of that intergenerational wisdom and wealth period that is found in those higher institutions and use that. There's so much grant funding. There's so much funding for research about topics that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get funded if you just did it on your own. And I think that's something that a lot of communities of color could be taking advantage of, you know, sans the major financial (laughs) and racial and economic barriers that a lot of these institutions pose to our communities. But that's another conversation. But you know, I want to get a little bit more into your actual like organizing and campaign work. So can you tell us a bit more about your work organizing in Austin and Texas overall? Like what what has been some of that work look like for you? Yeah, I think it's very much kind of like a response of, you know, what are the current harms in the community? What is happening? I've worked on a couple of different campaigns from like regulation around aggregate mining operations to trying to relocate toxic tank farms um, and currently really focused on the water issue in Austin's colony slash like the Hornsby Bend area in East Austin. Tell, tell me more about the water issue. What's going on with water in Texas right now? Yeah, I mean, Texas as, as a whole has some of the most contaminated water in the United States. There's over, you know, a million people that don't even have access to tap like running water. And it's kind of shocking because Austin, you know, has this image of being like liberal and progressive. But if you really look into the policies and the discrimination and kind of like the divide, Um, you see a lot of inequalities there. And one particular one is in this neighborhood in the Hornsby Bend area, there's around 12,000 residents, and they don't have access to clean and affordable water. They're being serviced by this private water entity. And I think, you know, water privatization has also been a huge issue. And we see from across the country that people that are serviced by private water companies have higher fees and less, like lesser quality water. And so, they're getting charged around a 50 to like $300 a month for water that is often brown, like literally just like brown and orange. Um, and the TCEQ, which is our environmental agency, is not necessarily responsive, which is not, you know, not surprising at all. It's been a common a common thread and all environmentalists kind of know to work around it or, you know, try to find other ways to get at solutions. So one of the things that we've been focusing on is organizing that community to try to increase um, pressure um, on the county and the city to do something about it, especially since Tesla moved in next door and they were quickly able to get out of the jurisdiction of the private water company and actually use city water. And so we see a very clear case of, corporations being prioritized over people. And so, yeah, we're trying to put pressure on the city and the county. We're also working on federal policy with the water bill, um, and then also kind of working on some state um, reforms with the drinking water revolving fund and how that operates and how they have qualifications for who gets to get a grant or who gets to get a loan. So I think there's just so many barriers at every single level um, for them to get access to clean and affordable water, which is such a basic human right. That's so insane. And like Tesla just comes in and is like, okay, we can surpass that because we have like the funding and we probably fund a lot of the politicians in the area or whatever. That's so crazy. Um, yeah, and I think it's also um, it's also because it's on the east side because um, yeah. we have very unequal environmental laws for east versus west Austin, and so there was, for example, an amphitheater that was trying to get water on the west side, um, and they had to go through a vote through the environmental commission and then later city council, but it got voted down in the environmental commission, and so they weren't able to access water. 
but being on the east side it was just very bureaucratic is behind the scenes and they just got approval and got connected immediately wow it's just insane to realize things like this are still happening even in like 2023 that like even in a place that's like so progressive and like brings in so much wealth you know especially during like things like south by southwest and all these things it's like people living there don't even have access to clean water that's insane um and it just shows you like the disconnects that people can have like there's just so much wealth but then it's like it's it overshadows or hides the actual real issues happening but that's an america problem but (laughs) this is like a case study of a very big american problem and yeah can you dive more into star empowerment like what is your vision for i know you talked about like why you started it but like where do you want it to go obviously you're talking about like policy and organizing but like could you dive a little bit deeper on like especially your plans of this year and being a part of the incubator program would love for you to walk us through that a little bit more yeah so i think with with start empowerment we started out working with high schools and implementing environmental justice curriculum and projects one of the huge focus that was kind of student-led was like food justice and like school gardens and making sure that communities have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And then from there, during the pandemic, we also shifted towards doing community-based education. And I think that's been extremely powerful to make sure that community members and young people have access to understanding what is organizing, how to get involved, to have the training and the skills. And right now, I'm actually working on a really exciting project trying to build both a liberation school, something that we've already kind of started with our summer programming and are building the new iteration of, and kind of building a leftist climate movement. I think being in the climate space for the past five years, you know, me and my friends, we've noticed a lot of the issues that have come up time and time again, from like, you know, neoliberal policies being pushed at the forefront or as the only solution Mm -hmm. to like, just like racism within the movement movement and sexism and harm and lack of like conflict resolution and all these little things (laughs) there's plenty (laughs) yeah and so I think I think we're at a time where I think people are looking for like what is the next thing and I think you Mm. know even with the the Biden decision with like the Willow Pipeline we've seen it time and time again how you know neoliberal politicians are failing us and they're continuing to prioritize corporate interests and so thinking about how do we really build dual power you know how do we really create sustainable communities how do we have sustainable mutual aid initiatives and how do we really build collective power to go against these harmful institutions and how do we how do we utilize political education and organizing training to build that foundation for communities to have the agency to do that And so that's, yeah, it's been a really exciting project. It's still kind of behind the scenes at the moment, but I think by towards the end of the year, we'll have something public and I'm just really excited to see where it goes. And I feel like so many people that I've talked to in the climate space are ready for this kind of next iteration of the climate movement. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome what you're building. I mean, For people who are listening, what's really cool, we're a part of this incubator program where we got paired up as a mentor and mentee. And so we've been having these calls biweekly as she's been building out this awesome school to think about like, how do we, how do you build an educational program that is very community and context focused to be able to mobilize people to work towards 
a more climate just future. And, you know, a lot of that can feel very theoretical. Again, it goes back to like this idea of like academia and how do you put it into practice? And I think what I, I'm really impressed about what you're building is you're, you're making it translatable, right? You're actually not talking about it behind classrooms. You're actually like, okay, let's get out in the community. And if we really do want to organize and we really do want to stop these corporations from polluting our neighborhoods and we really want to pass legislation, like that's great and all. But like when you actually think about the economic and the educational barriers to mobilize people in that specific way, there has to be frameworks. There has to be bridge building. And I think what you're building with the school is, is going to be an awesome tool to work towards that, right? Because that's what we need in terms of this next step of the movement. I think what we need is we need infrastructure that makes it easier for people, especially people who come from marginalized communities, to plug in and to know that they have the agency to plug in and that like they don't have to do it by themselves. And I think that is part of the collective movement that needs to shift. I think there's been a lot of discussion where I, I've seen a lot of communities who are just very fed up and frustrated with how the government has failed them time and time again. No matter what your political ideology is, I think everyone across the aisle feels that way right now as a country. And I think being able to create a space for, you know, more leftist ideology to come forward is actually an opportunity to bring in other groups to the conversation, especially people who come from, you know, blue collar, lower income communities. And we saw that with East Palestine and what just happened. I think there was this interesting shift in consciousness a little bit, a little bit. I'm not saying all the way, but like I noticed people there that were predominantly white, but also poor who were like, hey, this is really messed up that this corporation is just getting away with this. And then it's like, okay, that's like an interesting intervention point, right? Where it's like, okay, let's have a conversation about how your issue is actually connected to my issue of being in a predominantly poor black or brown or indigenous community. And that corporations are a big part of the problem, that the government is failing us is a big part of the problem. And there is a moment of unity there, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is where I'm seeing things could potentially evolve into with the creation of things like unions, creating mutual aid groups, um, groups where people can donate and support each other. I think there's really big opportunities there that I think could could really come out of this school or this educational program you're building is bringing in people that maybe don't currently view themselves as quote unquote climate activists, but also view it as like it's wrong that this is happening to their community and they want to protect their family and their children. And, you know, you're creating this space for them to feel included in that, too. So anyways, that's my praise of your program, but also where I think things need to shift. Right. So I'm just wondering, like, are those things that you've been thinking about with like building this program, obviously with like liberatory pedagogy, that could be a mouthful and people might not know exactly what that means. If you could break that down for people, what is a liberatory pedagogy and how is that being embedded into the school you're building? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said, it first starts with meeting people where they're at, asking them about what they see happening in their neighborhood, what they understand. I think health has been actually a main one, especially when talking about environmental issues mm. or even climate change, because health is something very tangible that people can understand and right. how their health might be, might be impacted by pollution or all these different external factors. Mm. So I think it starts with meeting people where they're at 
and then it kind of introducing a systems approach of like understanding the world and really tackling down and looking at like what are the root issues and mm. what are the root causes of all these issues that you identify in their neighborhood and so I think the first part is having that critical analysis mm. and then how do we shift that critical analysis into critical action and really studying movement history because there's so much incredible movement history, you know, both in the US but also across the world of people that, you know, were the most impacted and really came together and really organized and created change. And I think also organizing training, like there's a science, there's an art to organizing, there's an art to like forming those strategies, yeah. you know, the organizing kind of the strategy, the brain part, the storytelling, because that's how we communicate with each other and then the action and really empowering people to have agency to lead that change in their own communities. And so those are all different elements that we're incorporating and also just making it a fun and joyful experience. And people love learning from what I found I and mean, people want more opportunities to continue their growth and continue to learn. So yeah. No, I love it. I think these are the things that need to happen. People feel so isolated and hopeless, but I think those are very valid feelings, but there needs to be something different. That's exciting to people, right? That's inclusive. That makes them feel part of something new. And I think education and organizing is an amazing space for that to blossom, where people no longer have to feel like, okay, there's nothing I can do. It's actually like, you're not in it by yourself. We're together mm -hmm. and we're going to come up with strategy together and we're not going to leave people behind. I think that that's that's a really impressive message to be pushing forward for people to have hope that there's more that we can build and there's so much more that needs to be built. So I love that so much. And so, you know, from what you've seen, like you, you were talking about movements that, that really have inspired this work. What are some of those movements that really have inspired your organizing? Um, just for people to learn a bit more and maybe do extra research on maybe movement moments in history that we need to revisit because everyone always says like history repeats itself right because we don't actually study from like you know our ancestors like in the movement or activists so tell me a bit more about the activists or the movement spaces that really have inspired you yeah, I mean, I think here, you know, in the US, the civil rights movement is a huge one starting from like the Montgomery like boycotts, looking at like the farm workers union. And I think the problem, though, is the way they teach us that history, they don't actually tell us about the organizing happening, they pick one person and they're like, this right. person made a speech and that changed the world. But when you actually really look into it, you're like, no, actually, people sat together, they came up with strategy and a whole plan. None of this was random, right? Like Rosa Parks staying on a park was not random. This was very much planned. There was a lot of back work that went behind the scenes right. and people really organized. They built, you know, leadership teams that spread and that spread and that spread. And then they had thousands of people that, you know, were a part of it. And so I think that's something that I've been kind of going back and like really reading and digging into and like even thinking about like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, um, you know, initial mutual aid and even the start of like the environmental justice movement in the 90s and how, you know, lead communities of color, those leaders came together to really shape the movement and, you know, take on, you know, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, I mean, even in Austin, like just looking at the history of Poder and how like six women of color were able to defeat like six of the world's largest oil corporations with like $2,000 is all that they had. And wow. you really see that there's so many instances where like people power does win. And then if you look outside the US too, like 
fighting from like fighting colonization there's so much to look for and so I would just say like pick a location pick a context Mm. and just you know really dig into it there's so many instances of people coming together to build power and then successfully get what they need and what they want so yeah yeah I love that I love that and you know for young people who might feel like they don't know where they where to start or maybe they don't currently identify as like an activist or maybe that term might scare them a little bit of like you know is that safe for me to engage in is it worth it for me to engage in like what is your advice to them to just like get started if they might feel a little anxious with like you know get getting involved if they don't even know people you know for instance like I know a big part of your program is going to be reaching out to maybe even people that like have never been in spaces like this before like what is your approach to try to bring them in and create a comfortable space for them and also like your advice to people who might be listening who don't know how to get started yeah I think one of the huge things with what I'm trying to build is making sure that people have that space because I don't want to set people into toxic spaces (laughs) and unfortunately with with the climate movement and any movement, there's, you know, I'm not going to name anyone, but there are spaces that are harmful Thank and people you. kind of get really hurt and walk out and don't want to be a part that's of the what movement. I'm saying. I think that's something we really need to talk about and actually address. Yeah. And so, you know, I really think it's kind of hard when you don't know anyone or you don't know the politics of the city or the community, et cetera. But I think once you kind of get your foot in, you can figure that out. And so I think the best way is to find someone you trust Mm. um, that is already in the movement. I think that can be a really helpful way to kind of help navigate the existing groups, the dynamics, et cetera. But I think, yeah, with Start Empowerment, that's definitely something that we're trying to do and build up hubs in different local areas where we already have leaders that can kind of help guide, especially young people that are coming into the movement and plugging in them into groups that are supportive, that, you know, have a strong foundation and that are, you know, doing the work. Yeah, something I found is like going even on like things like Eventbrite, you can like find talks happening in your your city or your area that might be, you know, discussing some of these issues or even book readings, going to like local Mm -hmm. bookshops and meeting like local like authors who might be activists or advocating for certain issues in your area and just like connecting with them and meeting people at those events. Again, if you are someone who has social anxiety, that might not be for you. But if you're very extroverted like I am, like I'd recommend that as a step. But if you're more socially anxious, there are like spaces even like online that you can plug into, like online communities, Slack groups, which I would love if you could plug any of the resources that you really like. But there, and we'll list some actually in the show notes. I'll make sure to include that of just like some Slack groups people can join to like get connected with other young people to learn about how to take action. I think those are good ways to start so that way you can meet people if maybe you're nervous doing in-person engagements. But I think ultimately like to make the make some of the biggest impact, it is important to meet with people in person in your community. I know definitely that can be difficult even in like a pandemic-y world. So definitely like if that's not for you, like there's definitely ways to plug in still online. But yeah, if you can and you're willing to, 
meeting up with people like in your community just to talk about the issues happening and what's bothering you about what's going on. I mean, that's a great, that's a great start. And then trying to plug in with like local organizations and nonprofits that already exist. You don't have to start your own thing. I think a lot of people think you have to start your own thing. That's really not true or necessary. Like there needs to be more capacity building. But like you said, there also needs to be culture shifting, maybe even in some of those organizations that are like, well, we've been the activists this whole time. So like you all can't just like come in here and whatever. It's like, no, that in order to build like an inclusive movement, there has to be space held for older ideologies, newer ideologies, sharing best practices, but being open to feedback and shifting. I think that's a big part of what we need in this movement moving forward is like conversation and dialogue. And to know that people are on your team and on your side, even if maybe you don't 100% agree with every single thing, that's, that's where the magic can happen to build strategies and collective power together, right? So um, I love that that's gonna be really important to you and what you're building. And so I just want to know, I always like to finish these shows by talking about other action steps and tools to be supportive in your activism or the work that you do to address climate change. So, you know, obviously we're in this mentor-mentee relationship and program together. I wanted to know a bit more on like, how has both a, not, not to ask you maybe direct feedback on have I been a good mentor to you, but asking like how has mentorship, you know, been supportive for you in the work that you're doing? And also how have you been a mentor to other people? Can you, can you dive a little bit more into that? Yeah, I mean, I think especially like having an outside perspective is always important because it kind of enables you to really think about the solutions that you already know, but might not be thinking of. Like I think about the whole practice of coaching and it's really trying to help people unlock the solutions that they already have, but just might not have the right way to kind of frame it or think about it or get to it. And so I think always having that like outside eye is really helpful for the community to really be able to understand what they need to do. And so I think that's, you know, that's critical. Like coaching is critical to movement building, And then I think, you know, we we have to help each other and coach each other and mentor each other. And really, you know, for the young people that are up and coming, I know, you know, I help run the Young Scholars for Justice program and then with Start Empowerment. I just like love working with young people and it's, you know, so much fun to help them kind of be on this journey of understanding the world and their place in it. And also so much of what I know about organizing is all the things that I've learned from my elders. Like there's no way I would be the person that I am today without that knowledge. And so I think we we owe it to each other to continue doing that and passing down the information that, that we know and helping each other. And yeah. Yeah, totally. And then just to wrap up, how can people plug in and support the work that you're doing? If you can plug some of the the programs and the projects that you mentioned during the show and how they can plug in with you. Yeah, I mean, with um, Poder in Austin, if you're in Austin, definitely come um, organize with us. We could always use um, more help. Um, there's also a petition that we have going on right now about the water issue in particular, and you can find that on our website. And then I think with Start Empowerment as well, be on the lookout in a couple months. We're going to be, you know, launching and, you know, wanting young people to join us in our journey this year. Um, so, yeah. And then just, you know, follow along. I think one thing that I always think about when I'm in in positions where in rooms where there's like decision makers and things like that is like, how can I support the people that are doing the work? How can I bring that up? Like little opportunities can lead to so much more. And so I think, you know, 
supporting each other in that is always really important and thinking about the different spaces you're in, even if they're not environmental spaces, how you can support environmental work and environmental activists. And where can people follow the work that you're doing? Yes. So my personal Instagram is alexia.lecleercq. And then also my both the orgs that I work with have websites. So it's poderaustin.org and then start-empowerment.org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And if, is there anything else you want to share with listeners before we go? Uh, no, thank you all for having me and thank you for listening and being here and for all the great work, you know, y'all are already doing or going to continue to do. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. And make sure you subscribe to the Brown Girl Green podcast. And you can listen to this on wherever you get your shows and subscribe to the Brown Girl Green YouTube channel and make sure to follow the new Brown Girl Green podcast page at the Brown Girl Green podcast. Thank you all. Thank you all again for checking out another episode of the Brown Girl Green podcast. As was mentioned, make sure to check out Alexia LeClerc on IG as well as Start Empowerment and Poder. They will all be listed in the show notes for you all to click through and find more resources for organizing and just learning about the curriculum and education programs that they are building over there. And I just want to say that if you got anything out of today's episode is that education is such a powerful tool when it comes to taking action around climate change. Being able to educate each other in our communities is so critical. And for those of you out there that have access to an academic background or higher education, definitely figuring out how to use that education to build tools, programming, and training to empower your community and to support the work happening on the ground is going to make a really big difference. So I know everyone always says, you know, these little individual actions you can take, but being a bridge builder is a really big part of that. Being an educator is a big part of that. And I hope if that speaks to you that you activate and take action in that way. And as always, make sure you subscribe and listen to the Brown Girl Green podcast wherever you get your shows. If you loved this episode, subscribe to the Brown Girl Green YouTube channel. Share it with your friends, your family, your neighbor down the street. And make sure that you follow the new Brown Girl Green podcast Instagram channel, which is at Brown Girl Green podcast on IG. Thank you all again so much. Make sure that you stay safe out there. Keep educating your friends and family about climate change and make sure that we are uplifting activists and organizations in your area. Thank you again and catch you next time. 